Для мене завжди честь представляти Україну, і я пишаюся нашим прекрасним і міцним народом. Ви чули і бачили, як вітають Україну. Це те, що зробили ми всі разом. Це те, як вітають вас. Billions of dollars in defense assistance, advanced weapon systems like HIMARS, Patriot missile batteries, and Abrams tanks. Military training and intelligence sharing. The West's support for Ukraine has certainly been impressive, and it's also been expensive, which is leading some in Washington and elsewhere to question the wisdom of continuing to provide Ukraine with such robust assistance and to argue for a quick negotiated settlement, one that would certainly involve Ukraine ceding territory to Russia. But far from being a handout, Western assistance to Ukraine is actually an investment in the national security of the United States and its allies. And today, we're going to look at a recently published report that argues just that and does so very convincingly. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. David's also the author of a recently published report, Supporting Ukraine, Why It's Vital to U.S. National Security Interests, which we will be discussing today. Welcome back to The Vertical, David, and congratulations on an excellent and very timely report. Appreciate that very much, Brian. Great to be Glad with you and Kostya. Glad to have you. And also joining us is Kostya from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Welcome back, Kostya. It's great to see you again. Hello, Brian. Hello, David. So, David, your new report couldn't have come at a better time, as support for Ukraine is still strong, but it seems to be slipping a bit. You make a very strong case that continuing even increasing U.S. support for uh, Ukraine serves American national security interests as well as those of our allies. But could you lay out your basic argument? How does U.S. defense assistance to Ukraine enhance our security and that of our allies? Well, let me just start by uh, by saying, Brian, that there was a, a recent Gallup poll that showed there's still strong support in the United States for assisting Ukraine. I think it was 65% uh, favor continuing U.S. assistance so that Ukraine can win this war. So there has been some ebbing of support on the Republican side, no question about it. But overall, I would say there's still strong support, and there's still strong support in, in Europe. The question is whether our political leaders will continue to maintain their decisiveness and uh, readiness to, to support Ukraine. The recent decision on providing tanks, I think, was a, a positive sign that there's so much more that needs to be done, including now the discussion about uh, F-16s. Look, the, 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 the reason is um, what is happening in Ukraine has global implications. It's not just a fight for Ukraine, as vital and important as that is. This is about stopping Putin in Ukraine so that he doesn't threaten Ukraine anymore or for any other country, for that matter, in the region. And the Ukrainians are the ones who are doing the fighting. President Xi in China is watching how we respond to this. And if we are able to maintain the alliance, maintain the security and uh, the sanctions regime, 
and maintain the military assistance to Ukraine, the hope is that President Xi might think twice before he might move against Taiwan. So this has huge implications. It is in our national security interest to help Ukraine. It's the right thing to do. And we need to help Ukraine again, not just defend itself, but win. And win means driving every single Russian occupying and invading force from Ukrainian territory. And I'm sorry to say it has to be said, including Crimea. Yeah, no, I think what, what a lot of people don't get is really we're deciding the future security map of Europe right here. I mean, we're, we're, we're heading into this, this era of, of, of competition with, with, with Russia. Where are the lines going to be drawn? Which Well, you know, as, and as, as you rightly point out, Brian, it, it, if those who are calling for negotiations uh, are going to have Ukrainians make a compromise, then we're talking about sacrificing Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Right. We're asking Ukrainians who do not support any territorial compromises in, the, in exchange for a ceasefire to succumb to that to capitulate. And that will only embolden and reinforce not just Putin, but she and everybody else mm -hmm. who has their eyes on other countries' territory or natural resources, whatever the case may be. And so it is incredibly important that we support restoring the entire integrity of Ukraine's uh, uh, borders and, and land so that they get everything back. And, and the, the, the abuses that Crimean Tatars and others in particular have been enduring since the Russian illegal annexation in 2014 come to an end. Yeah, no, and, I, and as I've argued before, this is going to reverberate across the former Soviet space. It's going to reverberate in Belarus. It's going to reverberate in Georgia, Armenia, Moldova. I mean, they, 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 again, we may be looking, as I like to say, at a 1989 moment here if Ukraine is is, is, is victorious. Kostya, how does this look at, at, at this point from Europe? Um, is there an understanding that supporting Ukraine enhances European security? I mean, I know the Baltic states and the Poles and the Eastern European uh, countries who have, you know, uh, undergone the, the pleasures of Russian occupation, um, they, they know what's at stake. But as you go farther west, it gets a little bit more wobbly, uh, both in terms of governments and public opinion. So what's the, what's the picture look like in Europe right now? Um, you see, first, before I answer a question, I would like to take a small issue with what you said about competition with Russia. Okay. I, was, I, I, think, was... <laughs> I, think, I think that having seen what Russia did in Ukraine, uh, we may be talking about containing Russia, maybe talking about winning against Russia, maybe talking about changing the regime in Russia. But I don't think competing with Russia in the full sense of the word, that probably belongs to something like a few years ago. But it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a poor think, choice of words. What I mean is we're moving into a Cold War-style situation where Russia in the West are in conflict. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the West will compete with China. Um, with Russia, much less so. I think I think that uh, Putin's committed a fatal mistake by by moving into Ukraine on the 24th of February. Um, answering your question, um, it is interesting. It's quite a patchwork today in the EU. Um, it's not exactly East versus West. Um, let's put it like that. You see countries that uh, formerly you would think would not be so much on board, like. Um, Spain, or like Italy under the new government of uh, Giorgio Meloni, uh, actually becoming very active in supporting Ukraine. Look at the Spanish socialist government uh, basically offering arms to Ukraine on its own volition. Um, I think the problem 
still lies and by the way another thing which which needs to be mentioned bulgaria which seems to be finally waking up from its very long slumber in forgive me the comparison one bed with the russian intelligence and um, starting to move against malicious uh, poisonous russian influence there but i think that on the other hand you still have problems with uh berlin you still have problems to some extent with Paris. You still have countries like Belgium, which are much less um, enthusiastic about helping Ukraine. I mean, just a day or two ago, I spoke to a, a German diplomat who said, you know what, in the end, even after the Leopards, after all the stuff that happened, there is still this thought deep down among most politicians in Berlin that eventually Putin will want compromise, will want some kind of deal. And um, this is something that's very difficult to remove. But I have to say, uh, if one looks back to the 24th of February last year, the change in Europe is huge. Mm -hmm. And the European Union is seeing itself more and more uh, as also a security actor, which was not the case a year ago. And I think that after, hopefully, Sweden and Finland join NATO, what we'll see, we'll see the EU becoming pretty much congruent to NATO, apart from Ireland, Cyprus, Malta, you know, whose contribution to European security is, well, frankly speaking, not huge. Uh, so I suppose that will also impact the union. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a good thing. So generally, I think things shifted. But I think, and that's probably the last thing I'm going to say, uh, I think the calculation in Moscow is that eventually, if Moscow perseveres long enough and throws bodies enough at Ukrainian defenses, Europe will get weary, cabinets will change, coalitions will shift, and someone will finally utter the word peace, which Putin really wants to hear. I suppose that for now, it doesn't look like a very probable scenario anytime soon, but I think that's there's a calculation most but we but we got to be vigilant and reports like this need to keep coming out because we keep have to have to keep reminding people that this isn't charity this isn't a handout this is an investment in our in our own security david i wanted to dig into some of your policy wrecks a bit i mean you 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 uh, argue for increasing military assistance tightening sanctions um uh and uh financial assistance by uh, to ukraine by seizing russian assets and accountability for war crimes are the, the four main policy wrecks that were in the report in terms of increasing military assistance i mean i, I assume you're talking about things like fighter jets and attackums. i mean I'm, I'm trying to think of where we can where we can escalate now we pretty much those seem to be the only things that are sitting on the table that i'm aware of um zelensky of course was in europe this week he gave a speech and he spoke in london paris and brussels lobbying for fighter jets um as well what do you where, where do you see us increasing this uh increasing the military assistance i think it's in those two areas brian it's it's the attackums and it's the fighter jets and i think the attackums can have a, a, a an impact sooner than the fighter jets the the training i think would be a much shorter time frame and that's something that i think we we can move ahead with or should move ahead with the, the, the problem i have with this is the Ukrainians ask for these things, 
we initially say no, then we think mm -hmm. about it and we spend a lot of time, should we, should we not? What about the concern of escalation? And then we wind up giving them what they've asked for. I wish we would just cut out that middle phase. And when the Ukrainians ask for these things, it's not an automatic yes, but these things clearly would have a positive impact on their ability to fight this war and to win. And that, again, right. it comes out, you, the three of us have talked about this many times before. It is changing our mindset so that it isn't just sticking with the Ukrainians as long as it takes, well-intentioned though that phrase is, and it isn't just helping them defend themselves. Again, well-intentioned as that phrase is, it is to help them win. Yep. And there's yep. a big difference in how we approach these things and the assistance for Ukraine and what is needed. If we think about, we want to help Ukraine win, which means driving every single Russian soldier off of Ukrainian territory. Ukrainians need jets. They need attack guns. We Look at the impact that the HIMARS had. Yeah. And, and look at the the time lag between when they asked for them and when we finally provided them. The Ukrainians have shown tremendous adaptability. Their learning curve is very short. They know time is of the essence. Every day we don't move forward, every day we drag our feet on decision making is incredibly costly for, for innocent Ukrainians. Yeah, and this is a dangerous time right now. I mean, the Russians, the Russians are are mounting a, a pretty fierce offensive in the east. Um, my understanding is the Ukrainians are going to launch a counteroffensive in the springtime. Costia, anything to add to this on the issue of in, in, increasing military assistance? Look, uh, to add what David said, my feeling here, sitting in Vilnius, is that at least two major European NATO allies have not yet themselves answered the question to themselves whether they really want Ukraine to win big time against Putin. And you're talking about France and, and Germany, I assume. I think that, that well, France and Germany, and I, I think that as long as there are doubts about it, as long as there is kind of this open-ended um, attitude to uh, arms supplies, we are going to have problems, and Putin will be encouraged. AFD, the the uh, uh, the right wing party in uh, German Parliament, which which is known for its kind of uh, Putin Verstehe uh, sympathies, they had the the audacity uh, to advance a peace plan uh, a few days before the anniversary of this full scale invasion, which actually was treating the, the situation as something that can be remedied and to me completely horrible or ridiculous depending on how we have a look at it uh, a return to the february 24th lines after which sanctions must be lifted from russia uh -huh. and military aid to ukraine should be stopped they released that plan in uh in in, in munich uh no they they advanced it <laughs> in the german parliament but the problem <laughs> is that you you have the audacity to do it. I mean, okay, that worked for their own audience, probably, and that was probably a domestic political ploy. But generally, I think the fact that such things can be said out loud, and you never know, maybe next um, week, Die Linke, which is the left-wing main right. extreme left party in, in German Parliament, will advance their own uh, right. view on the conflict because they also love Putin. It's like a love competition between them, a horseshoe effect. So I suppose that this comes from this idea that um, we don't know what we want in the end. Yes, we don't want Ukraine to lose, but this is, you know, it's good for PR releases for oil companies. It's not good when you're prosecuting the war, when, as David right. correctly said, 
the whole security of the European continent and an extremely, it's, it, and, and essentially the global balance are very much in the focus. Yeah, and it's a question of do you want like stable democracies on your eastern borders or dysfunctional kleptocracies? You know, this is this is the this is the question that you have to ask uh, people like like President Macron in France and and and, and, Pres and Chancellor Schultz in 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 Germany. And I wanted to dive into another before we move into the second part into another one of your policy wrecks, David. And this is tightening sanctions. And I was thinking this through as I was reading your report and think. How much higher can we go on sanctions? We pretty much dialed it up to 11, but there is a place I think we can go. And this is this is tricky. And that is enforcement and sanctioning third parties that are helping Russia bust sanctions. There was a really good piece in the New York Times last week about, about uh, countries that are helping Russia evade sanctions. And some of them are our allies like Armenia, or our, our, our partners like Armenia. Um, so I, is that where you would suggest we go or where, where could we go on sanctions? I think there are two areas. Um, there, there are the third country sanctions, for sure. And I think this would have an impact on China. There have been reports that China, while not providing military assistance, has been providing technology that mm -hmm. has been useful to Russia for military production. And uh, the Chinese don't want to be crosswise with our uh, sanctions policy. So I think tightening that and letting the Chinese know we are watching very carefully what they do. Then there are some countries with whom we are either allies or friends, and they need to understand that this is this is a time of choosing. Uh, this is uh, a very black and white issue, right. which is Russia is clearly 100% the guilty aggressor in this war. Ukraine did nothing to provoke or justify an invasion. And countries need to get off the damn fence and understand that if they, they, they don't have to impose sanctions, but they also shouldn't be engaging in sanctions invasion. The other part, though, I would argue is there, there are still quite a few banks and Russian entities that have not been sanctioned. And I think we just have to do a sweeping sectoral approach uh, where Russian, Russian sanctions are imposed across the board. Um, I don't know what we're waiting for if we're thinking that we'll wait for uh, X time for this. Um, we're past the X time. It, it is time to unload every sanction we have available. It, the sanctions are not going to end the war, but they will make life more difficult for Putin and those around him. And that's the point. As long as we do it in accompaniment with this military assistance for Ukraine, beefing up our, our NATO allies in the region, bringing Finland and Sweden in, just, just stacking up the losses that Putin is incurring as a result of his invasion, making it clear what an unmitigated disaster this is. And then the last thing I would say, it's not sanctions related, Brian, but just doing more to highlight to Russians the toll this war is taking. Mm. Uh, we, we've just seen now... Uh, Prigozhin saying he's no longer recruiting in prisons because yeah. he's having difficulty doing so. Word is getting around. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of Russians who would rather live than be thrown into the battle as, as cannon fodder. Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Prigozhin in the second in the second segment as well, because I think that I, I noticed that and that is that is that is very interesting. You're also recommending increasing financial assistance and seizing Russian assets to pay for it. This is something that I think is, is, is going to happen. I mean, it's already starting to happen, but I think it's going to happen in a much bigger way. Any 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 anything else to say on that? No, the only thing I would say is for those who uh, wring their hands about, um, well, if we seize Russian 
hard currency reserves, then China might pull its funds out of the United States and so on. My reaction to that, and I don't mean to sound glib, um, is if China invades Taiwan, we should seize Chinese, China's assets too. We, we can't let countries who park their assets in our financial institutions, uh, buying our bonds or debt or whatever, think they get a free pass. There are going to be huge consequences for countries and leaders who uh, do what Putin has done to Ukraine. Right. And so to me, it's, it would be unconscionable to return this money when Ukraine needs all these funds and more to pay right. for its reconstruction. Yeah, and we we I mean this is very very doable. I mean you'd have to kind of cross a lot of legal T's and dot a lot of legal I's in order to do it right. But I, I had Josh Rudolph on the on the program a few weeks back, former Treasury Department official in the Obama administration. He says, yeah, this is doable. We just got to make sure we, we we do it within the framework of the law. But it, it it's it's very doable. Any thoughts on this, Costa? Before we shift gears into the second half. Um, well, I think that it is doable. I think that it will be painful. Um, I think that um, maybe uh, the long-term effects of working with the, especially the Chinese and the Indians and the South Africans and the Brazilians on not helping Russia right. uh, will be felt sharper in Moscow uh, than if, I mean, let's say something like Raiffeisenbank is sanctioned, although that's, by the way, one, one of the glaring examples of yep. something that's not sanctioned yet. Uh, well, it's technically uh, an Austrian I, bank. I do think the importance here, very briefly, is that such actors like India, like uh, China, especially India, by the way, which uh, is somehow um, uh, is solely there with the democracies when it suits it, and is so suddenly a very much a realist power when it doesn't. Um, I think they have to learn something from this uh, war. And I suppose that, especially the Biden administration and the European Union, which is pretty wobbly on that, uh, have to really go not even an extra mile, but start walking this mile. Right. Should we get tough with the Armenians? Because the Armenians are helping the Russians bust sanctions, and the Armenians are a U.S. partner. There's a large Armenian diaspora in the U.S. It is, I mean, look, it is, we should speak... Well, we should speak, speak to, to everyone, to, to Azaris too, for example. But yes, I think uh, one should be pretty, pretty um, tough about it. Yeah. David? Just real quick, Brian, I know you want to move on in the next segment, but we also need to be much tougher with the, <coughs> with the Georgians. Mm -hmm. uh, the Georgians' relationship with, uh, let me be clear, the Georgian government's relationship with the government in Ukraine is deteriorating. Yep. The Ukrainians withdrew their ambassador. Um, there's the issue of Saakashvili. President Zelensky and the Ukrainian Rada have called for his release and return to Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the Georgian government is buddying up to Moscow. And uh, there aren't many countries that are moving in that direction, worsening relations with Ukraine while improving relations with Russia. That would kind of put them in the category of Iran, North Korea, uh, right. Lukashenko and Belarus. That's not good company for the Georgian government to be in. Yeah, no, David, you and I have been calling for sanctions on Ivanishvili for a, for a, for a, for a long time, even before this war. No, that, that I would I would definitely advocate getting getting tough with the Georgians. Um, and I don't think that would resonate badly with the Georgian people, quite frankly, because the Georgian it, it, people it are with us. It, it, absolutely right. And 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 just two quick, real quick points to add on that, 
No one is talking about dragging Georgia into this war. The last thing anyone wants is a widening of the war that would include Georgia. So you hear this from Georgian dream officials. It is utter nonsense. The other thing is we're also not pressuring the Georgians to impose sanctions. There are, Moldova has not imposed sanctions. There are some countries in the region that simply aren't in a position to do so, and, and we can be flexible enough uh, to accommodate that. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing some instability. Well, not instability, but the, the Prime Minister of Moldova just, just resigned, which is, is concerning. All right, on that note, we'll shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at some of the power struggles inside the Russian elite over the war and what they may pretend. Uh, I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior your fellow at the Atlantic Capitals Eurasia Center. Joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. And joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian Service. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Я пишаюся українською сміливістю, я пишаюся українською незламністю, я пишаюся українською результативністю. Я пишаюся вами усіма, хто воює і працює заради нашої держави, хто підтримує фронт і державу. Дякую усім вам. So the Wagner Group announced this week, as David pointed out in the first section, that it will stop recruiting mercenaries to fight in Ukraine from Russian prisons, something they have been doing since the summer. The announcement comes amid a parent power struggle between Yevgeny Prigozhin, the oligarch who finances Wagner, and the Russian Defense Ministry. As we discussed in this podcast a couple weeks back, Prigozhin has allied himself with Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, Konstantin Malafeyev, and Alexander Dugin against Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, and Valery Garasimov, the general chief of staff. Kostya, I know you keep a, a close eye on Russian internal dynamics. How significant do you see this apparent rift um, between Prigozhin on the one hand and those he's allied himself with, like, like Kadyrov, Malafeyev, and Dugin, um, and on the other hand, Sergei, Sergei Shoigu and the Defense Ministry. And also, I mean, what is Putin's appointment of, uh, of Valery Garasimov as commander of the Ukraine invasion and, and Prigozhin's recent announcement that he's not going to stop recruiting from prisons? What does this tell us about where Russian strategy is at this point? Well, I don't think there's strategy there. And frankly speaking, even I've had 10 eyes and kept them all on the internal dynamics in Moscow <laughs> and have seen much just like everyone else because it's so opaque and so treacherous in many ways that any kind of conclusions uh, are usually premature and are usually already dated by the time they're declared premature. Uh, but I think that um, what we probably see is Gerasimov consolidating his hold on the operation mm. because it's clear he's been appointed uh, by Putin, and when you appoint your chief of general staff to run the show, it means essentially you ran out of generals, right. and that means <laughs> that it's make or break for the general for the general 
in question, which means Gerasimov. Um, everyone expected him to do some kind of, as the Germans would say, Wunderschlacht, you know, some magic battle that will uh, uh, solve it for Putin. Of course, he knows that's impossible. And of course, he knows the fate of previous commanders. So it seems like he's proceeding very cautiously. And I would be surprised, Brian, uh, if he did not ask Putin for some sort of definitive powers in deciding who does what there. Um, frankly, I wouldn't overestimate uh, Prigozhin's powers because in the end, all these mercenaries, uh, all these uh, criminals that he uh, recruited on logistics, on, a on deployment, they all depended in the end on the Russian army. It's not like a, a completely separate exercise. So I think the army has the levers, and I suppose that uh, maybe Gerasimov said, put it on hold, I just want to sort it out. I want to see what kind of forces I have at my disposal. Uh, I want to see what I'm going to do, because it seems like um, the general understanding in Moscow, and it's, that is one thing that's easy to figure out, um, is that Russia has numerical advantage. And with the population still largely, if not supportive, then indifferent to war. And quite a lot of people still saying, OK, well, you've been called up, you have to go to the front. Um, Putin counts on his ability to throw more and more and more forces at the Ukrainians and in the end just wear them down. You have 100 million, uh, sorry, 140 million country on the one side of the, of, of, of the dividing line and one that's probably 30 plus. 40, yes. 40, I think it's 40. Well, 40, but you have to count in the refugees. So right. anyway, even if it's 40, it's much fewer people to fight. Yes, Ukrainians are better motivated. They are better armed. But still, the numerical advantage is huge. And I think Putin's going to use it. And, you know, while everyone is expecting some kind of major offensive, look, I'm not a military analyst, but um, I'd say that... Uh, Let's say 24th of February is not the date Putin wants to celebrate with the new offensive. It wasn't exactly a very glorious day for him. So probably they're going to buy their time and probably they're going to invent something more outrageous and more dangerous for Ukraine. I would still say they will come. I, I, I would be very much surprised uh, if they don't try and break Lukashenko's will and not try to use um, Belarusian territory to strike at Western Ukraine. Uh, that would be a very disruptive move. So far, as far as I'm, but David may correct me, so far, there are no signs that uh, the uh, that Russian forces in Belarus are grouping in such a way as to kind of break through the border. Uh, but I'd say that would be an extremely painful thing for the Ukrainians. And I suppose that Gerasimov will look at the options and he may well present to Putin this incremental plan, which will mean we just stand and we just grab centimeter by centimeter, uh, we just wear them down. I think that will be an option. It's another matter that uh, the arms that may start flowing into Ukraine, including, for example, harpoon missiles that can hit Crimea, that may change the calculus. And that may force Putin, who I think now very much has a kind of hot button uh, on, on basically all issues military in this campaign. Right. Mm -hmm. She may order something, Gerasimov or no Gerasimov. That is a possibility if the feeling is that Western arms 
will make a dramatic and probably decisive difference. I'm watching the clock, David. I know you got to run soon, but I wanted to come to you with this: these these splits we're seeing in the Russian elite um, between, again, Prigozhin on one side, um, to, allied with Kadyrov, Malafeyev, and Dugin against Shoigu and the Defense Ministry on the other side. That's just one rift we're seeing. We're seeing other rifts as well. Um, can the U.S. and the Allies exploit these rifts, and if so, how? I, I don't think to be honest, that we would be very effective in trying to exploit these rifts. Uh, my recommendation would be for us to focus on helping Ukraine win. And, and however those rifts play out as a result of that approach, I think that's the way to go. And so I, I, think, I think just focus on helping Ukraine win. Uh, we, we, on the one hand, we have the greatest influence over Russia's internal situation than we've had since the breakup of the Soviet Union. How, do, how can we do that? By helping Ukraine win. Mm -hmm. And a Ukrainian win means a Russian defeat, and that could have tremendous reverberations inside Russia. I, I don't think beyond that, though, we will have much control or say in how all that plays out. So let's just focus on helping Ukraine win. All right. Watching this and thinking, you know, are there ways we can kind of weaken Russia's resolve uh, from, from our end? And, and that's... Highlight, highlight the losses that Russian right. forces are, are suffering. I mean... You know, Kostya mentioned rightly that um, the sending just just flooding the the, the transom with Russian soldiers, um, and people make the comparison to the uh, Soviet resistance to the Nazi invading forces. The, the huge difference, of course, among many, um, is that the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. Right. In this case, it's the Russians who have invaded Ukraine. And so, back in the 1940s, Soviet citizens were defending their land. Their, their 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 lives. In this case, they're destroy or trying to destroy Ukrainian uh, land and kill Ukrainians. And a lot of the Russians who are doing this have no idea why they're being sent. And I think that's why you're likely seeing these reports about no more prison recruitment. Word is getting around. Um, keep helping Ukraine inflict as much damage to Russian forces as possible. Give them the means to fight and win. And if we do that, then we'll see what happens inside Russia itself. All right. From your lips to God's ears. And on that note, that's a good way to wrap it up because I'm watching the clock. I realize David's got an appointment coming up, so I'm not going to make us go overtime. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only Vic Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas and is the author of the report, Why Supporting Ukraine is in U.S. Uh, US Interests, which I will share in the show notes with you. Also joining us from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, has been my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Thanks for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a lot smarter. 
Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thank and I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Leak is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled in working order for our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all important post production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.